I'm sure that more than a few of you listeners of the show have heard at least once that the science fiction coming out of mainland China is some of the most forward-thinking and also relevant to our lives, possibly relevant to our future science fiction that anyone's read in a long time. But what if I told you, and here feel free to visualize Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus popping on his glasses or whatever it is he does while he's talking to, to poor old Neo. What if I told you that there was a science fiction novel written in the 90s in Taiwan, in quote marks, the other China, that is actually more relevant to our lives today and could very well be much more relevant to the futures that we're going to live in the coming decades. Well, we're actually going to be talking about that book on this episode. You, you, you probably saw that coming. Um, the two guests are going to be the author and the translator of said book. So, Chu Tawei or Chi Dawei. Um, I'm going to be saying Chu Tawei in this coming interview, but and uh, the translator, Ari, Lus- Ari Larissa Heinrich. They're going to be with me. But before we get to the interview, we're going to do the Truthific News. Although I should probably say, because I've not said this on the show for ages, I'm Angus Stewart and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. It's worth mentioning, by the way, that this is now the first episode of the Taiwan season that I'm going to be doing on the show. You may be excited to know that there's going to be at least one more, very likely two more, science fiction books, or stories at least, that we cover on on this season. But there's quite a quite a selection of other stuff I've got lined up too. There's also going to be another queer fiction book, quite an important one. If you know your Taiwanese lit, you'll be able to guess what it is. That'll be on the show. I guess I I guess I haven't mentioned yet, yet that uh, yeah, The Membranes is without a doubt uh, queer fiction too. So that's what's coming up in the interview too. But before that, we have the, um, the Truthific News. Right, so here is the Truthific News. We got three items today. The first is a panel. This was an event that I actually took part in and it has already happened. So this is now up for streaming up on YouTube. The event was hosted by Essence of Wonder. They're sort of like an online platform. They host lots of sci-fi themed events. They interview authors a lot. So they did this um, sort of online Zoom event live. And like I said, it's up for streaming. So its full title was uh, Exploring Chinese Science Fiction Multidimensionally. Fiction, translation, fandom, industry, and more. And I was one of, I think, eight, eight speakers. The panel was divided in two. There was, a, I think, an Asia panel and a Europe panel, basically just because of uh, time zone time zone problems. So part one, the Asia panel, was pretty much a, a PRC panel. Uh, it had Regina Kanyuang, Chen Fan, Feng Zhang, and Emily Jin. So that is one, well, Regina is all sorts of things. Author, um, does she do translation? I'm not sure, but just about everything you could think of, like PR, hosting events, uh, helping with rights sales, I think even. Uh, Chen Fan, who is an author, and he also actually translates from English into Chinese, and is just sort of a, a thinker, public intellectual these days. Feng Zhang, who is a critic, um, so he had a really interesting perspective on trying to sort of, th- through discussion and criticism, keep, uh, like, just the push to get the writing quality of domestic science fiction in China um, higher. And then Emily Jin, uh, who's a translator and who's been on the show, just like uh, Chen Fan, actually, two former guests of the show. And then in the Europe panel, um, we had four people, including myself. We had uh, Yen Ui, who's, uh, I think I've mentioned her a few times on the show, friend of the pod. 
Shueting Christine Ni, who's um, she's got a translated anthology of Chinese science fiction on the way. Um, Angus Stewart, don't know who that guy is. Um, and then Guanzhao Liu, or Liu Guanzhao, or Lu Guanzhao, I should say. Uh, another uh, former guest of the show and one of the two leaders of the London Chinese science fiction group. It was a really gr- great chat. I think we covered just about every angle of Chinese sci-fi you could wish to hear covered. I'm sure we may have missed something, but I'll leave that for you guys to find out after you go have a listen. So that's the first news item. Second news item. Now, this is something you can pre-order. It's an upcoming book, Vessel, a Memoir by Tsai Chongda. Now, this is um, a translation by another friend of the pod, Mr. Dylan Levi King. And this is sort of, um, I know this one's a big deal for him because he's interested in getting voices. Uh, or writers, I should say, Chinese writers who have views that aren't just sort of um, simplistic box ticking for Western readers. He he likes trying to get these sort of um, voices, which wouldn't might be alternative within um, the PRC, but certainly in translation, are really something a little different. I understand that was um, part of the appeal, I think, for for Dylan. I'll just read the 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 blurb that Harper Collins, the publisher, have got up. It's not too long, and it'll do a better job of explaining than I can. An unprecedented and heartfelt memoir that illuminates the lives of rural rural Chinese workers, offering a portrait of generational strife, family love and loss that crosses cultures and time. Tsai Chuang Da spent his childhood in a rural fishing village in Fujian province, when his father, a former communist gang leader turned gas station owner, has a stroke that partially paralyzes him, his responsibilities faulted Tsai, his only son. Assuming his his new role as head of the family, Tsai toils alongside his mother and older sister to pay the medical bills that have become a part of a rapidly changing Chinese society. As Tsai works his way through university and moves to Beijing, eventually becoming a director of GQ China, he finds his life increasingly at odds with the family he supports but has left behind. Like the Glass Castle and Hillbilly Elegy, Vessel neither romanticises nor condemns the people and circumstances that shaped a young man's life, but instead offers a way forward, revealing how tradition can enrich modern life. And I should also say the cover is... It's a really nice cover. I like it a lot. I'll just let you guys look it up. So yeah, well done, Dylan. Um, that's really cool that that's out there. Might be fun to talk about it on the show because I know it's not fiction, but I've broken that rule a few times. Like we've had Sam Mao, we've had Li Juan, so we we could have Tsai Chong Da. That, that would be acceptable, I think. Okay, the last news item, it's more sci-fi. I'm sorry, I'm just obsessed, aren't I? Um, it's a very special thing happening for the London Chinese Science Fiction Group, you know, the one I just mentioned a few minutes ago, mentioning um, Guangzhou, one of its two hosts. So they're having their second anniversary coming up, and to kind of celebrate it, they're having a huge star as a guest on the show. It's the Chinese science fiction writer Han Song, who I'd say is probably my, my personal favourite, at least based on everything I've read in translation. And the story that of his that they'll be covering is My Country Does Not Dream, Wuda Zuguo Bu Zuo Meng. Those are all characters I knew, by the way, except Zhu. I was only sort of half sure of that one. Uh, Zuguo, at least according to Google Translate, means motherland. Looks pretty cool. That's happening on the 2nd of May. Um, that story is available in translation in a new book that's just come out. Um, it's from Dark Moon Books, and it's called Exploring Dark Fiction Number 5. It's part of a series they've done. Exploring Dark Fiction Number 5, a primer to Han Song. So I guess I should really try and hurry and get my hands on that so I can um, read the story before attending the event. But in any case, that's that's a really cool chance to hear Han Song speak in an English language event, although I 
I don't know he might be speaking he does speak pretty good English um, but some of it might be interpreted by the wonderful Guangzhou from Chinese to English not sure I guess they'll find out on the day as well but um, yeah that's extremely exciting that's that's all the churchific news but before we charge right on we actually have a quick ad break isn't that exciting the ad break is just going to be me talking again <laughs> but we got a sponsor for the episode so let's hear the ad So exciting news, this episode has a sponsor. It's the Hong Kong-based publisher Blacksmith Books, and they're sponsoring us with their new title, Destination Peking, by friend of the pod and former show guest, Paul French. So if you know Paul French's wheelhouse, the content of the book will seem pretty on brand. It's uh, about fascinating people, mostly uh, Westerners who were living in and around Peking in the sort of late colonial first half of the 20th century. So think like jazz dubious characters, risky business, uh, all this very like Paul Frenchian stuff, uh, for lack of a better term. It's a gorgeous looking cover too, looks um, very China noir, like um, you'll know from when uh, Paul was on my show, he's got some quite strong opinions about the design, uh, art deco and other modernist aesthetics. So yeah, um, if, if you want a little a dosage, a new a fresh dosage of Paul French's um, work on the history of China of this era, this this looks like an absolutely fantastic one to pick up. Um, I'll put a link to Blacksmith Books store where you can order the book in the show notes, but I guess it will be available through all your um, all your favorite bookshops, hopefully, and certainly uh, Bezos Corp, Amazon should have this book too. But, you know, do, do write by the publisher, buy it from their site. That's the best thing to do. And once again, link will be in the show notes. So we're on the show with Chitawe and Ari Larissa Heinrich, the author and translator of The Membranes. So great to have you both on. How's it going and what have you both been up to? Uh, let's start with Chitawe. Hi, hi everybody. Um, I'm glad to be here and um, uh, everything is fine in Taipei, Taiwan. Um, but uh, I think that because of the pan- pandemic, I still feel, um, feel that I will be uh, vulnerable to any disease. So I spend a lot, a lot of time um, uh, being too panicking about my own health. So I do a lot of exercise and uh, I try to eat healthy and uh, avoid any <laughs> strong drink, any coffee. But uh, I think that I will get myself uh, insane very soon. This kind of, I think that it's kind of um, hypochondria right here. <laughs> no. Is this a totally new thing since the pandemic? Have you never had these thoughts before? I have had this tendency. Uh, maybe some of you might find that the sun traces uh, in the membranes as well. Um, right. The characters in the novel are too concerned with uh, their health and uh, they are certainly too self-conscious. And I think that uh, um, I share some characteristics with them. Right. Okay. I, I see what you mean. Um, and Ari, how's it going at your end? Yeah, it's good. Thanks for asking. Uh, we, uh, I guess, Australia and Taiwan have in common that we're, we've been, um, we've, we've been able to move through this pandemic with relatively few cases for now. Um, but the the surreal quality of life and the the changes in behaviors and um, everything is still still here, still with us. And um, 
So yeah, I think I, I initially responded like Dawe did. I started jogging and I hate running. I hate jogging. hate it. Um, I did it anyway um, because I couldn't do my usual yoga classes in groups yeah, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but then I injured a hamstring and as a result, I've kind of been, haven't been exercising for a little while and it's um, mm -hmm. <laughs> more frustrating, <laughs> but it, yeah, other than that, I think everything's good. So I'm, uh, I, my job at uh, the ANU up in Canberra is a pretty new position for me. And um, so I'm still getting used to life there. It's, it's a really beautiful city. And I hope that anyone listening feels free to come and visit sometime. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a, it's, they call it the bush capital because it's uh, while it's a city, it's very small and manageable, and it's surrounded everywhere by mountains and hiking, and it's quite beautiful. So that's it. Just a very kind of everyday life. Nice. I've I've taken up running too, and it's um. I mean, I've kind of done it on and off, but this really was the time when running became a regular thing for me. And this is a huge, uh, huge victory for my dad, who is a really serious runner and wants me to basically just be a copy of oh. him. And now oh, yeah. he's, he's finally starting to get his way. It only took, it only oh, took no. about 27 years, but we got there. Um, so I guess you've both told me a little bit about yourselves. Can you tell me and the listeners a bit more about yourselves and what it is you do? Uh, again, Tawe, do you want to go first? I was busy with creative writing, mostly uh, fiction, science fiction, or queer science fiction in the 90s. And uh, after that, um, I left Taiwan for the United States and uh, uh, got a PhD from UCLA. And uh, after that, I came back to um, Taiwan to teach at a National Changing University in Taipei. Many friends have uh, uh, dissuaded me from teaching in college. They think that I should uh, return to creative writing. <laughs> so uh, I think that uh, Ari might be one of them, perhaps. <laughs> uh, so, so currently, uh, I, I am associate professor of Taiwanese literature, uh, but uh, I might resume um, science fiction writing in any time soon. Thank you. Right, cool. And um, Ari, what is it that you do with uh, with yourself day to day? And I have to second that aside from everything else. I mean, Dawei is an incredible scholar and he's known uh, for his scholarship, but his writing is also just amazing. And so it, it must be hard to, to, to decide how to direct your energies, um, but it's his original mind. Uh, I feel like it would be a, a great service to continue to develop that fiction writing. So um, for me, I, I, I maybe say that because, you know, I haven't tried to write that kind of uh, fiction. I mean, it's not one of my areas of expertise, but I definitely am an avid consumer. So it, um, and I'm, I consume a lot of that literature, both in my, with my hat of Chinese literature scholar on, but also just for leisure. And, um, and uh, so it, although my training and degree are in Chinese literature. In fact, the reality of my research over many years now has taken me in a lot of different directions. Um, one of the main directions has been towards uh, looking at biology and science and medicine and intersections between those things and art and literary culture, not just Chinese uh, in the broader sense, but also um, from a lot of other contexts. And um, that's one area. And the other area has been an interest in queer studies of all different kinds and also in translation. And for, for a number of years, all of these things ran 
uh, in parallel, like three separate streams that rarely overlapped in any overt way. Uh, so uh, working on translating Dawei's novel was a great opportunity to bring all of those things together in one place for the first time. And it was, uh, yeah, kind of satisfying in, in a career way. Yeah, it sounds like they, the only way they could have gotten a better translator for the book um, might have been if, you, if there was like a cyborg version of yourself or someone who was also <laughs> hugely into 90s cyberpunk. But yeah, that's fortuitous. <laughs> Um, so it might be a cyborg. Uh, yeah, I didn't ask, did I? I'm not 100 percent sure. You know, I don't know for sure. Everybody is already one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That. Yeah. Of course. Silly of me not to realize that. Um, so <laughs> let's let's start talking about this book, The Membranes. I think before we we talk about the actual story, it might be fun to talk about the setting. So. Um, yeah. b- before I ask you the sort of um, more intellectual question, I'll just frame here's a simpler one what is what is the setting of the membranes what kind of a world are we in i uh may i start with something personal but uh, uh okay um <laughs> i my partner and i have been together for for a long time and uh, um um when i was uh trying to uh start writing a new science fiction story in the 90s um I was inspired by him uh, in the 90s, and he was a, a graduate student um, focusing on uh, the ozone, or uh, the problem of the ozone. And uh, he told me that uh, very soon, uh, all of us will have to uh, live under the sea because uh, the ozone um, uh, is already seriously, seriously broken. Uh, what he told me was not not anything too new to me because many of us uh, already uh, knew about the threat that uh, the prospect that uh, many of us will have to live under the sea. But uh, the image really encouraged me to uh, to develop a story <laughs> in which uh, uh, all of the the uh, uh, human beings and uh, many other uh, lives. Um, have to stay uh, away from the surface of the earth. So right. that's why, uh, yeah, so that's uh, basically the, the setting is there from, um, from my partner's abandoned expertise. <laughs> he didn't continue it. Right, yeah, I, I remember one of the things that caught my eye the most about the book um, when I first heard news about it, it wasn't so much the very ahead of their time themes, but the fact that the gap between the original language publication and the translation was so big. So I thought, oh, wow, is this a chance for me to jump back into the 90s um, when I was like less than less than 10 years old? Um, and right mm-hmm. away, the references to the ozone layer, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is um, this is kind of nostalgic. But then I think quickly that was replaced by being struck by how futuristic the the book was but and the other thing I, I was on my mind as you were answering was a thing that feels weirdly the, the the setting of people living in sort of um closed off cities under the sea and the sort of the real world of the surface of the earth being this danger zone that sounds a little bit like the first lockdown here in the uk we have to live in these little safe houses you know little boxes that contain us and then I was in the countryside at the time but even going out the door I felt like I was you know 
in in the danger zone, the the contagion zone, no man's land. So I'm sure that wasn't really an intention when you're writing the book, but that it resonated with me in a very strange way, giving me memories of the first lockdown here in Scotland. Um, anyway, I'll stop rambling and I'll ask you the actual question about the setting I had lined up. It's probably, I think this is the spiciest question I had ready. Um, so recently in discussions about, I think sci-fi and also Chinese sci-fi, because that's something I'm quite interested in. I've seen people in, in, in their articles calling for um, sci-fi or at least fiction envisions futures, which are um, just and progressive and inspiring rather than kind of dystopian and pessimistic. And yeah. I have mixed feelings about that because I'd like the future to be better, but I yeah, like yeah. my, I, I much prefer reading sort of pessimistic fiction. And with the membranes, mm -hmm. there's a lot of sort of, you could say forward thinking or progressive or ahead of their time uh, elements, but it's, um, it's not such a, uh, for the future of the world in the story, it's not such a, a rosy picture. So do you think the membranes would make the people who are calling for sort of just progressive, inspiring sci-fi happy? Or would you even want to try to make them happy? Um, anyways, I, I think I, I am really impressed by your kindness and you are a very um, uh, idealistic and I yeah maybe idealistic person and in fact I didn't um, uh, I still then uh, think about uh, the question of a future happiness but um, but uh, I admit that uh, um, I did uh, try to imagine an alternative to the status quo mm. uh, in the 90s and I think that uh, uh, maybe my realization will make Ari smile. Um, I think that at least there were at least two as aspects of status quo I wanted to escape uh, in the uh, 90s. The one is obvious. Uh, the um, uh, In the 90s, I was looking for a more queer-friendly future. That's why uh, I would try to imagine a uh, very uh, wild, uh, queer, uh, and non-normative fantasy in the membranes. And so we see that, uh, um, I, I wouldn't reveal too much, but anyway, uh, uh, the, the novel is very queer and uh, it's all about queer parenting, the parents, the children, and so on. Uh, and the many of them are, are queer. And uh, uh, the second aspect is that I, in the nineties, I. Um, I really wanted to escape Taipei from somewhere else because uh, Taipei at that time was very exciting, but also uh, uh, awful. I mean, uh, Ari, Ari, also visited, uh, Ari also visited and stayed in Taipei in the 90s. And uh, he certainly remembers how uh, um, disastrous the traffic uh, in Taipei uh, <laughs> during that time. And uh, we didn't have a subway, but uh, there oh. was, not, the subway was not yet ready. And uh, right. there was construction everywhere uh, across the city of Taipei. And uh, everybody was stuck uh, in traffic in rain. And uh, um, uh, Taipei at that time was as messy as um, the city in uh, the film Blade Runner. In Blade Runner, the city is always raining mm -hmm. and uh, very dark, and and uh, uh, everybody is uh, 
is covered with certain slime in in the film, and I think that uh, so it's very close to what I felt in Taipei in the nineties. So I, I also wanted to, um, escape escape Taipei. Um, that's why uh, I, um, the membranes uh, virtually uh, um, refer um, refers to uh, Taipei or Taiwan very seldom. Uh, virtually. No, um, so because I uh, because uh, I try to find escape when I was writing the novel. Right, mm -hmm. I think escape I is think... on a lot of people's minds today. So another good reason to to yeah. kind of bring the book into in, into English. Ari, did you want to add anything to what Tawei was saying there? Yeah, I think it's a tough question that you ask, Angus, because on one hand. Um, of course, I understand the appetite for something that is more optimistic. Um, but personally, like you, I my own consumption habits are more towards the dystopian, which feels more real or whatever is written feels in the service of something genuine. And that genuineness may be a feeling or it may be a picture. Um, but mm -hmm. it often if the idea of optimism suggests that you're putting you're imposing a an ideal view on mm -hmm. something that may not actually be true. So that always feels a little bit uncomfortable to me. Um, I'd rather prefer the truth over the, the optimistic. In that sense, uh, the novel is also, um, you know, it's made, so it, it's a novel about people, people are imperfect. Um, and it, it gives you an, a window on um, certain types of interiority and relationships that I think we can identify with now, like, you know, for example, being alone with our computers all the time, um, or that sense of loneliness and being cut off from the world, even while we're trying to reach out, um, that's sort of got an uncanny familiarity at this point uh, in the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. I think you can squeeze optimism out of that um, in terms of looking at something and knowing that you're not alone, even 25 years ago in an imaginary figure. Um, we've all had this type of experience. So, uh, but I don't think that someone who's looking for kind of a I would be surprised if someone looking for a specific understanding of a, a radical new positive future, I, I would be surprised if they're satisfied by this. But, you know, I don't think that this book pretends to do that anyway. Yeah, for sure. I think what, what Tawei said about having an alternative to the status quo, mm -hmm. but not necessarily one which is perfect, that's sort of, yeah, if I was going to read something, some kind of optimistic vision, of, an, of, a, of a better or possibly better world or people people having a shot at making a better world that's that's something i would be pretty comfortable reading um the one author who i can well i guess two authors who i can think of who've done that that i've read are um ursula Kiliguin, um with like some mm -hmm. of her stories are set in they seem like they're set in societies that she'd like to live in but they're still societies mm -hmm. with problems and then the other one is um my deceased countryman uh, Ian Banks, who's created mm. a sort of a perfect society, mm. but they still mm. have uh, you know outside problems to deal with, and they're still yeah. made up of people, and people tend to have problems. Um, I, I don't really have any clever comment to make there. Just agreeing with Tawei about alternatives that aren't necessarily perfect are a good sort of um, compromise. Because yeah, I think anyone who's writing something positive, really positive has to come up against the problem of you know a story needs some drama needs some problems at some point otherwise people will fall asleep or pay you no attention 
And with Banks too. Banks has a sense of humor. And so right. does so does Dawe, mm-hmm. I'd say. <laughs> uh, it's really important so that even when you're delivering that deadly punch, you're delivering it with a sense of humor that sort of suggests, hey, we're, we can all laugh at this. Right. Uh, That's very true. Yeah. yeah, humor and irony as well, I guess. Um, so I think we, we need to talk a little bit about um, the story, just summarize it for the listeners. I'll, I'll, I will frame this one slightly. Um, so the, the framing I was going to give was that there's all sorts of fascinating things about the story and there's all sort of all, all sorts of difficult things about the story. And to be, to be more specific, when I say things, I mean the contents of the story. There's some really interesting stuff. And there's some stuff which a lot of readers might find quite difficult or upsetting. And you can kind of see that if you look, I was looking on the Goodreads reviews and a lot of the reviewers were leaving quite long lists of content warnings about things that shocked them, but then would give the book like a four or five star review because they still liked it. So there's the contents, which are interesting, but challenging or difficult. And the Hmm. structure and the storytelling as well um, Mm -hmm. were... well, I won't try and describe it, but it left me trying to figure out like what kind of book am I reading here? Um, so I, I don't know who I want to hand this to, but how, well, do we have an elevator pitch or a quick sort of summary for what the story is and who the characters are? In, uh, th- these days, I um, I have talked to uh, Ari that um, I realized that I have been preoccupied with the uh, uh, the idea of parent parenting for a while, maybe uh, for decades. So uh, certainly the membranes is about many different topics, but uh, for me, uh, it's uh, uh, really about uh, parenting or queer parenting. I say this not because I I want to become a parent or I want to have a children. Um, um, it's not, I, I don't think about it often. But uh, I think that I am really concerned um, that uh, how uh, the parental figures are interacting with us and uh, how when we uh, get older, how we become parental figures. Uh, I don't mean I, I don't mean to uh, to refer to my own parents, but uh, I think that uh, uh, in many Chinese people are like me and uh, we are very um, um, preoccupied. Uh, okay. You, you, you. Uh, I think uh, both of you know that uh, um, in a society like Taiwan or in the Chinese societies in all over the world, many are so obsessed with topics about their own parents or about children, about families, especially nuclear families, and uh, and many talk about the possibility of escaping. Uh, they are original families, and uh, many want to become um, better parents themselves. And I find that the uh, um, uh, the book, so the, the membrane, uh, is basically about a queer parent uh, and uh, uh, her queer child. Uh, certainly, there okay, there is love between them, but uh, uh, they are also sometimes uh, they are also. Um, abusive to each other, they, there is a lot of misunderstanding, and I think that uh, these top uh, and uh, these facts are relevant to uh, people in the nineties, but uh, also relevant to people all of, all of us now. I I suddenly realized that uh, I have been 
uh, concerned with parenting, also because that the queer parenting or lesbian parenting becomes something very trendy in Taiwan now. And we know that the uh, uh, gay marriage um, was legalized in Taiwan two years ago. And uh, uh, since then, uh, before, before the legalization and after it, uh, many uh, queer people in Taiwan, especially lesbians, want to become parents. And um, I suddenly realized that actually many of my friends or colleagues are already queer parents or they are going to be parents. I often forget that actually I, I'm not too different from them. I, uh, although I don't, I, I'm not going to become a parent myself, but uh, I have uh, uh, deal with uh, topics about parenting in my science fiction. So I think that uh, um, is a uh, it's good to recall that I, what I have done in the membrane. Thanks for that answer. I, I really appreciate the sincerity, and I can say, although obviously I'm not from any kind of a Chinese background, both sides of my family are pretty intense about family ties. That stuff's on my mind a lot too. So I really, I really, yeah, I, I feel what you're saying totally about both being really, really invested in my parents, but also kind of occasionally imagining a world where I'm escaping, doing something else. Um, I, I, that speaks to me. I wonder if, if we can sort of give li any listeners who've not read the book or heard about it before a really sort of um, quick intro to, to the plot. So I'm just going to read the little um, blurb that's up on Goodreads and I'll throw a, a quick question or a, something out. So here we go. It is the late 21st century and Momo is the most celebrated dermal care technician in all of T-City. Humanity has migrated to domes at the bottom of the sea to escape de devastating climate change. The world is dominated by powerful media conglomerates and runs on exploited cyborg uh, labor. Momo prefers to keep to herself and anyway she's too busy for other relationships. Her clients include some of the city's best known media personalities. But after meeting her estranged mother, she begins to explore her true identity, a journey that leads to questioning the bounds of gender, memory, self, and reality. Um, so the thing that strikes me on reading that blurb is some of the things we learn about Momo at the start mm -hmm. are sort of like red herrings. They're, it turns out they're not so important. And other things are really key to where the book's going. And like w when I saw the title, The Membranes, I thought, right, are we going to be like um, going through the different layers of a person's identity and peeling away? Um, but as I read the book, Tawi, the thing you did with sort of the style of the writing, switching from one style to another, and the the, the structure, the, the very, un uh -huh. what's the word? Unorthodox structure that you chose, it made me feel not so much peeling away as just totally unraveling and or spiraling. I got really um, not lost, but I was felt like I was going down a really steep slide. Like, oh my! And it maybe helps that it's quite a short book. So as I was reading, I was just rocketing towards the end, mm -hmm. getting more and more confused, but more and more interested. Um, so I wanted to ask you as well: um, Should we try and talk about the story or the structure, uh -huh, or would that um... be spoiling? things for people who didn't read the book yet um okay i i, I think that the, uh 
it's a, <laughs> it's a um, difficult question. Uh, we also know that the many science fiction stories uh, are like uh, detective fiction stories in disguise. Both wrong. I mean, uh, many of the science fiction stories uh, also aim to discover the the so-called facts uh, behind the disguises, especially when many of us have been disillusioned into many uh, false memories and false uh, realities, virtual realities, and so on. I think that the detective, I, I, in fact, it's a very simple, I think that it's a kind of uh, simple, basic format of a detective fiction. But uh, I think that the, maybe the, the writing style, the style of the language, the, the language and so on, uh, um, make the, the story looks uh, kind of too excessive <laughs> for, for readers. Yeah, quite experimental. Mm-hmm. I, also, I also know that uh, uh, some readers who have uh, read the advanced copies show their concern with the surgeries in the uh, novel. And, uh, uh, and I, didn't, I, I didn't expect that the surgeries, in fact, the, the surgeries in the novel are not that, that graphic, but uh, I, I, I'm surprised to find that uh, some readers are unsettled by the surgeries in the, in the novel. And I have to admit that uh, I did mean to depict the surgeries, but uh, in fact, I, in the United States, uh, the surgeries I, I tried to uh, depict were not the surgeries on human bodies, but the surgeries on machines. As I said earlier, in the 90s, the traffic in Taipei was mm. horrible. So many of us had to rely on motorcycles. And uh, my partner and I uh, had to rely on our motorcycles, our uh, old and uh, motorcycles in the rain. And uh, we often had to bring all the motorcycles to the repair shops all over Taipei. So we often spend uh, long hours in the uh, repair shops uh, waiting for uh, uh, the uh, uh, how to, to wait, wait, waiting for our um, the 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 re- repairing process of our motorcycles, and the, and the, it occurred to me that the, the images of the motorcycles uh, taking apart uh, look so similar to uh, organisms, the organisms uh, on operation tables, and uh, I I think that I got a lot of. Uh, uh, visual impact from uh, my own motorcycle uh, taking apart, and um, uh, I wanted to to uh, to capture the similarity of the machine and uh, the human body I I was imagining, but uh, I didn't I didn't mean to portray the the actual body myself. I think that the uh, um, Ari might know uh, the human. Uh, Anatomy more than I do because I, I read Ari's book, so I know that uh, he might know the human body more uh, more sufficiently than I do. But uh, but I'm surprised that the readers uh, will presume that uh, I portray the surgeries on the human bodies too much. Um, Ari, do you want to take the button there? It's it's interesting. Um, you know, I think that in this work, as in many works of literature, there's an intimate relationship between the form and the content. And if you change one, the other one changes. So in this case, I, maybe it's that people are more 
accustomed to seeing this type of structure in a film rather than in a book, for example, right. uh, where you, you might be disoriented temporarily uh, by one scene, but you know that soon enough you'll cut to another scene and get more information and that there might be a twist somewhere along the line. Um, and so I think in that sense, um, the, the structure makes sense given how the plot unfolds without giving too much away. Um, and that the, I think, you know, talking about Blade Runner and so forth, I, I just assumed, I think, when I began translating that, uh, that Dawei was a, a, an avid movie watcher, mm -hmm. that you would watch a lot of movies and that this kind of yes, cinematic yes. Uh, structure might be in your mind. Oh, and and, and yeah, you know, I yeah, secretly wish that this book could be made into a movie of some kind, but mm. well, it's, uh, it, it, it's true, though. So I think there's something in that, so that the structure is going into it. It does seem like a narrative of a certain familiar form, but you'll be surprised because you wind up in a rabbit hole going somewhere you didn't expect to go. Um, and that some readers are going to like that and other ones are going to be a little bit uncomfortable uh, with that. And that, that's good. That means it's a good book. You know, the, mm -hmm. no, if the book is, makes everybody happy, there's probably something wrong with it, I think. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really have any questions about translation or, the, you know, the craft of translation here, but I think, it, sorry, here on my piece of paper, but I think this is a good chance to throw one at you, Ari. Um, so one of the unconventional things the book does, if I'm remembering correctly, because it's a while since I read it, is we start mm -hmm. with quite a lot of exposition quite straightforward sort of just this exposition about the main character Momo's uh, life. So Ari, did you have to make any decisions as a translator about how to render um, anything like that? Or was it fairly straightforward? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, the part of it for me was trying to understand who is this person as a character, because once I get a sense of who she is, that will tell me what kind of language, which vocabularies I want to draw on. And, um, you know, as we all know, it's not one-to-one yeah. -one with Chinese and English. Mm -hmm. You have a million choices that could go in so many different directions. Um, and then part of it is this long process of negotiating what that final meaning may be. So early on in a translation, I rarely, like, I feel like I'd have no clairvoyance. I don't know. I can't predict what the final product will look like. You know, I've read it in Chinese and I know what that what the mm -hmm. feeling is for me. And I might interview people who've read it in Chinese and ask what they took away. But yeah, it's very open-ended, the first draft. So I, d I don't know if, I know uh, every translator has a different method. For me, I, I do many, many drafts, um, starting with one that's super, super rough, just to make sure I understand what's going on, and then narrowing down and uh, picking different paths. And it was like that with this one. And I guess I'm really lucky that uh, Dawe is here. Um, and was so generous and able, willing to chat about the, the specifics. So that's, I mean, it's a really different matter to working with a text by an author who is no longer with us um, than the responsibility shift. So, uh, so yeah, that was really helpful to be able to ask questions um, and then to understand this person. And then I think, you know, in the end, I'm just like some random academic nerd. You know, I may not have the best social skills. You know, there are all kinds of things that the characters I'm translating may be better at than I am or that who may be worse at. Um, so sometimes in the end, I'll also consult um, native English speakers who don't know Chinese at all and say, you know, when you see this, what, what do you see about this person? What comes across it? Does this seem consistent with her character and uh, things like that? So those decisions that you mentioned, Angus, were really hard to make at the very beginning. And I just make them very broadly at first, knowing that I'm going to come back and refine it later on. Like the very first draft looks very ugly. <laughs> 
very ugly. Right. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, I've got one more question before we go on to the next section, and this has jumped into my mind as soon as uh, how I started talking about the bodies being like motorcycles or vice versa. Um, it's about influences on the book mm-hmm. from sci-fi because we talked about Blade Runner a bit. That you, right away, bodies and you know vehicles. I haven't read this book, but one of my favorite sci-fi writers is J.G. Ballard, and uh-huh. one of his more infamous books is Crash. So sort of like. I guess there's when it comes to human bodies and machines, there's, I guess, sort of um, there's stuff from, I don't know what you'd call this, like everything before cyberpunk, before the eighties, all this sort of um, post-war or even pre-war sci-fi that deals with machines and and bodies and and, and stuff. And then thinking of cyberpunk or at least the cyberpunk, the things which you could call cyberpunk, which I've um, consumed uh, are, it's fairly limited, but one of the, one of the, um, one of the only yeah, animes yeah. for grown-ups I've ever watched is Ghost in the Shell, yeah, which I guess yeah, was yeah. having its moment in the 90s. Um, so I don't know if these things are things that you're into, Tawe, but were there any influences from sci-fi uh, that you can uh, cite apart from Blade Runner that helped inspire um, the memories? Yeah, I have two two points to make. Uh, the first that is that uh, many people of my generation in the 90s uh, we were uh, hugely influenced by uh, Hollywood productions. So we know, like uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's yeah. uh, Terminator series. Okay, the, the term, I, I often tell my students today in Taiwan to watch Terminators, but they usually, they all, always ignore my request because they think that the, uh, the Terminator series are too old-fashioned. Um, they are not cool at all, they, so they wouldn't watch them. But uh, they were very inspiring to, to me when I was working on um, the membrane. Oh, okay. The Arnold's uh, science fiction movies uh, are not queer at all. But uh, I think that uh, uh, the way how um, memories and the human bodies are reconstructed how they are destructed um, were very um, uh, enlightening to me at that time and uh, in fact I didn't I could uh, in, in the 90s I could I can get some um, inspiration about queer lives from certain artists and the f- philosophers and uh, get uh, skills of science fiction from others and I think that uh, I uh, I learned some skills from Hollywood productions at that time. And the second point I want to make is that the, um, uh, actually um, in the 90s, um, uh, some local commentators in Taiwan already uh, mentioned that the, uh, my, uh, the membrane reminded them of uh, ghosts uh, in the machine. Uh, uh, ghosts in the machine in... Eh? Sorry. Is that Ghost in the Shell? Ghost in the Shell? Uh, okay, sorry, Ghost in the Shell, Ghost in the Shell in the 90s, because Ghost in the Shell in the 90s uh, was already, okay, there are several versions, and uh, there are, uh, it was already very, uh, what, uh, several, some earlier versions were already uh, available and popular in Taiwan. But I have to say that, uh, in fact, uh, uh, I was not that familiar with uh, Ghost in the Shell, um, and I was not really a fan, and I, and uh, so I didn't think that I was very uh, strongly influenced by it. And uh, and the one 
uh, and this, there is something essential. Uh, goes in the shell, uh, capitalize on the female body a lot, right. and uh, uh, the 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 that animation is so obsessed with the female nude, but yeah. uh, I uh, but the membrane is not. And I the uh, and I I was not interested in the female nude in the nineties. So uh, the body I was conceptualizing in the nineties was totally abstract. Uh, I was um, the novel, and I were not interested in uh, the fetishization of the female body at all. So I think that the okay the the membrane might might make some readers think about uh, ghost in the shell, but I think that that, that is, is more about a uh, coincidence rather than any actual uh, inference. And in fact, in the I have to say that during that time, um, many writers and uh, or uh, fans of science fiction were also influenced by many other uh, cultural products from Japan, like Akira. Akira, right. uh, the animation, was I think that was even more influential than it was more obviously influential than Ghost in a Shell in the nineties to many writers of my generation. Readers might agree that the the membrane is filled with despair, with uh, many different things like uh, parenting, uh, uh, maybe a pet despair about parenthood and so on. But uh, there is also some. Um, mysterious enthusiasm in it. And uh, I would like to admit that uh, uh, the membrane uh, was also inspired by the uh, gender theory and the queer theory I was reading in the 90s. And uh, during that time, uh, students or, and some young artists of my generation were so excited with the, the new uh, gender theory, feminism, and the uh, LGBT theory from the West, especially the United States in the 90s. And um, we were so, maybe we didn't uh, understand those theories sufficiently, but uh, they enable us to uh, imagine certain narratives. And uh, so I think that the uh, um, the the membrane is also a narrative, trying to digest the 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 inter, uh, the American series at, at that time, and the, maybe the this is also why some uh, readers find that the uh, the membrane um, feels so weird. <laughs> because uh, the membrane in, uh, contains certain inspiration, not maybe not uh, imaginable to uh, okay, not uh, in, include certain inspiration whose uh, origin might be um, just to uh, kind of obscure to the readers today. Sure, um, this actually I remembered what I wanted to say and what you just said. I can actually connect the two things. So what I was going to say was about when you said maybe it's a coincidence that uh, the membranes and ghosts in the shell have so many similarities. Um, but there's a word from uh, biology, at least a word I learned, a term I learned in high school in biology class that I is one of my favorite phrases, um, convergent evolutions. So it's the idea, like if you think of the, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like the echidna in Australia and then the hedgehog 
in the rest of the world, two almost identical animals, which have no connection or, yeah, basically no connection on the um, the big family tree of all the species in the world. And yet they've somehow converged into something similar. And I, I kind of wonder if in the 90s across the world, maybe more so in developed countries and maybe even more so in some of the mega cities in East Asia, there was some relevance that cyberpunk sort of network related stories had. I think another thing Ghost in the Shell and the Membranes did for both did for me um, was what you were describing about feeling sort of weird in that there was writers like yourself in the 90s and maybe the 80s as well trying to imagine what the future might look like and maybe some of the predictions were have no bearing on our reality today but other things are just strangely relevant like Ari used the word uncanny earlier and I, I can think of stuff that um like I think I I, I mentioned this on a bonus episode I did there were like obsessions with things like cyberspace in the 90s I remember cyberspace being this cool word yeah. when I was a kid but then I grew up yeah. as a teenager and even like uh early 20 something thinking cyberspace this has no relevance to my life but now here in lockdown I think I live in cyberspace it feels so relevant and there are aspects of the membranes that that speak to that having a virtual existence and like in, in ghost in the shell like um it's the, the my the version of that that i like the most is the tv show and there's stuff in season one and season two of ghost in the shell that seem to have mm-hmm. predicted our reality like a network of strange alt-right terrorists who have like weird nationalists but also completely discordant ideas that season two of ghost in the shell but that could be describing america in 2016 to 2020 it's really uncanny mm-hmm. um so yeah i don't have a question for you there i just was itching to say that so i think we, i think we should keep going we've been going for approaching an hour now so the next set of questions i've got it's about the contexts both of the original yeah. publication of the book and this english translation so uh, that's i think it's a gap of something like 15 years I think I should, I should have the numbers in front of me. Um, but what, so like the, the mid nineties, was it 1995 was the original publication? Uh, in, uh, 96. 96. Okay. There's yeah. only one off. That's good. And then we've got the new, um, well, the English translation today in 2021. And I, I didn't check Is this the very first translation of the book? It doesn't exist in other languages. Um, Oh, whoops. Which other that, languages? The Japanese translation was available 10 years ago. Oh, right. And the, the French uh, translation was uh, available five years ago. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah. I, pardon and, me. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, the, the Japanese uh, uh, and uh, the French um, uh, translators uh, had their own um, different motivations from the um, anglophone one. I think that um, okay, the the um, the Japanese um, the Japanese uh, publishers have been interested in literature in Taiwan, so they they are often uh, uh, more they are uh, if they want they are often uh, quick to translate. Uh, Taiwanese literature, and uh, the French, um, the French people simply enjoy science fiction, and I have to admit that I was so shocked when I visited um, France for uh, two 
to promote my French translation. And I found that the uh, French readers similarly, uh, they, they will buy uh, any science fiction uh, available, even without knowing what the, the book is about. So mm. they, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a very shocking. I, I, I went to a science fiction festival in, in France and I find that the, uh, many French readers bought my book and um, for French translation and asked me to sign for them. And naturally I asked them why they would be interested in my book. And uh, they admitted uh, the reason was that uh, they knew nothing. They, they couldn't expect anything. So mm. they bought it. It's quite the reasoning is was certainly moving, but also stunning. <laughs> awesome um yeah i remember like, a long time ago now i attended a, a genre fiction symposium at the Leeds center for new chinese writing and one of the um guests was french i think it's Brig brigitte uh -huh. duzan i think um i probably mangled that pronunciation of her name but she talked a little bit about the french book market and how uh books like just books in french bookshops are organized and it sounds completely different from anything I've seen in an English language, or I think I think even uh, any of the Chinese bookshops I visited when I lived in China. Um, is, so, like uh, speaking of uncanny, like a, a country that's not so far away from where I'm sitting right now, but where the attitude to reading is really quite different, like like you're describing. It's it's interesting, but I, I want to keep the conversation moving here. So. The first question I've got is about the original context of the the, the Chinese edition. Um, yeah. So you, you've talked a little bit about what Taiwan uh, was like in, in the nineties, the nineties Taiwan and Taipei you were living in. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned the traffic a lot, which I didn't see coming. Is um, I, I guess Ari and Taiwei, you were both there in the nineties. Mm -hmm. What? Can you say anything else about what it was like and what the significance of the membranes was in that context? Um, Ari, do you want to go first? You've not spoken for a while. Sure. Uh, for context, um, I mean, it's so different. I, I'm obviously I'm not from Taiwan, and so my experience being there was, you know, entirely my own. Um, and I I loved it. I loved the chaos. What what I interpreted as chaos and um, availability of uh, of um, the city, like so easy to tra travel through. Um, and the punk scene was so alive mm -hmm. and there were thing, aspects of it that I found so much more um, accessible than I did in various cities in the U.S. at the time. So it, because I was that was the age I was at, it was just very thrilling. Um, and and so in a way, I kind of feel wedded to that period. So much was going on. Like I think of it almost like and Dawi can correct me here. But, you know, from the outside looking in, it seemed like there was a flourishing going on, like yeah. Paris in the 20s. There was something going on in the air. Um, at that time, very lively, um, maybe post-martial law. And mm -hmm. that really was just fascinating. So that's why I keep returning to that period um, yeah. to, to look at, at what was going on there. Um, Tawei, is he, is he right or is Ari imagining? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, will, I, I would say that uh, actually, uh, I think that the, the 90s, often, yeah, people often say that the uh, 1990s uh, is a golden period for queer fiction, queer literature in Taiwan. But uh, uh, not only that, I think that the uh, uh, Taiwanese society was especially exciting in the 90s. And I think that the, 
maybe even more exciting than Hong Kong or China at the same time. Uh, China in the 90s was not that, uh, uh, for many reasons, was not that uh, um, exciting and uh, um, uh, kind of quiet. But uh, the Taiwanese uh, cultural things in uh, in the 90s were very, uh, was certainly uh, flourishing and uh, uh, um, and uh, and uh, um, kind of I think that people at that time were willing to do a lot of experiments. I think um, one uh, reason is very decisive. Uh, economy in Taiwan in the 90s was especially good. I remember during that time, uh, young people in Taiwan had uh, uh, could afford more time and more more expenses on cultural events and the cultural production, uh, cultural uh, consumptions, and so on. And uh, in some sense, uh, young people in Taiwan in the nineties were a bit luckier than those in Hong Kong, China, um, Korea, and so on. So that's why. Uh, many would uh, have nostalgia for uh, the 90s in Taiwan. But um, uh, while, while as there were a lot of opportunities uh, in the 90s, many would also want to, uh, many would be uh, so greedy that they would, want, they would reach out further. I mean, like me, uh, I saw that uh, um, I didn't, Get enough uh, cultural nu- nutrition in Taiwan, so I would want, I would want to leave Taiwan for the United States in the nineties. Um, it was also because that uh, um, I was um, Taiwanese people in the nineties were kind of uh, optimistic, so we uh, I would want I would want uh, something more. That's why I would mm-hmm. leave Taiwan for the states in in 99. One uh, important and useful reference for all of us is Chiu Miao Jing. And uh, uh, of course, both of you uh, have read Chiu Miao Jing and very familiar with Chiu Miao Jing. And uh, Chiu Miao Jing is a legendary writer and uh, her books uh, became very representative of the 90s. And uh, from Chiu Miao Jing's books, we can see that uh, uh, young people of her generation, uh, which is also of my generation, were not so worried about um, uh, financial prospect, were not so worried about uh, employment, but uh, uh, they were uh, uh, willing to do a lot of experiments about their lives, and uh, they will want to uh, embark upon creative writing or other arts. Uh, so, um, yeah, the 90s was kind of a romantic uh, for, yeah, for many. Hmm. That actually, it par- it's, it, you've given me some memories of quite far back in this podcast when I had uh, Brian Holton, the uh, Chinese, well, Chinese to English and also Chinese to Scots translator. And he was speaking, he was saying some really similar things about, I guess, a time when he was younger in 1970s uh, Britain and, and Scotland, where I guess maybe the economy wasn't booming, but it was yeah. a, people my age or even younger than me like maybe 20s to 30s had an easier ride um it was easier to get a house to you, you know you could you could delay climbing up the career ladder or even if you didn't want to climb up the career ladder there was um a unemployment benefits and art grants and so on so that was maybe the time that that was the time in the UK when punk uh-huh. 
you know, you could be a punk. There were lots of punks because I guess similar to Taiwan, there's a little bit of a, a buffer or a cushion or something where you can go out and yeah, produce culture, have ideas and so on. And now it's not like people have stopped doing that, but times have changed. Things are a bit more austere. So yeah. Next question. Uh, this is about the, the current context that this English translation is, is coming out. Um, what, what does it mean to have the membranes in English in English in 2021? Does reading the book feel really different if we revisit it now? I don't know who wants to take this one first. Uh, maybe Ari, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I just think the, the it's critical in so many ways. Um, some of them are just accidental or coincidental uh, and some less so. So, uh, for example, uh, in English, as you know, um, translations of Chinese language science fiction have been having a kind of renaissance for what, six, seven years now, mm. um, winning awards and, um, and you know, doing really well in English language markets, which for any translator is always a bit of a surprise. Like you kind of never expect, you know, those the a translated work to compete with something written in English originally. Uh, and yet it's happening. And there's some fascination with um, Chinese visions of the future. And, um, and, I, and something I could say more about would be aspects of Orientalism that shape that interest in, in uh, Anglophone readers, for, for some readers. But so there's this there's this wave of interest, um, and yet it does tend to overrepresent uh, mainland China. So in a purely uh, in a truth telling mode, I would say it's important to make sure that readers understand that there are many other really good works of literature out there um, that predate some of these ones even, uh, and are and you know function perhaps in more sophisticated ways even sometimes um, that. Uh, that come from different parts of Sinophone world. So in that sense, I feel like it's really important to have the book as a counterbalance, but to, to describe it only as a counterbalance doesn't do it justice. I mean, the book stands alone in its own right. It's a very strong work. And I've often said that, you know, of course it, it, it has a science fiction component um, that appeals to science fiction readers like myself. But it also is a kind of psychological portrait. It, it's it's also a, a work of literature where the science fiction is almost not not quite incidental, but it's the context, it's the backdrop against which this kind of meditation on parental relationships unfolds, uh, against which it unfolds. So um, yeah, I think I think that's really important too because it's just like like any other good work of literature. You know, you you hope in translating it that. English language readers can get a sense of something they can relate to, something that they can identify with uh, in some common experience. And in this case, there's a lot to relate to. And uh, the book, so the book offers things, I think, to people who are interested in science fiction, but also to, to a lot of other people as well. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's sort of a yeah. roundabout. I think it does. Yeah. Um, there's one other aspect I want to ask both you guys about. It's it's the thing I keep bringing up and shoehorning into the conversation, um, cyberpunk. So um, yeah. a lot of us have been living in online bubbles due, due to lockdown. Um, I've at least in, I don't know how much of this is just me and my own, my own interests, but I see more references and discussion of like the relevance of either contemporary or like 80s, 90s cyberpunk to things still going, either things which have continued to go on in the world or things which are resurgent in the world or new developments in the world. Um, I can only really think of one example of like a new resurgence of the 90s sci-fi 
in pop culture, and that's the Matrix Four. God knows why, but there's a Matrix Four. Keanu Reeves presents the Matrix Four. Something is supposed to be coming, and we could probably quite easily think of some parallels between the Matrix and the Membranes. Probably quite a lot, actually, if we were really trying. Um, so, do either of you guys think um, that the sort of cyberpunk tropes and mode are worth? kind of resurrecting or continuing to evolve in this coming decade or is that sort of misguided nostalgia should we not bother with that Anyone want to uh, go first? okay okay uh, uh i yes uh cyberpunk has been yes certainly very important uh the relation of the membrane to the Ronra cyberpunk is not that substantial, and mm. uh, it's interesting that uh, in fact, in Taiwan, many or many readers and writers are already familiar with the term cyberpunk. But uh, um, somehow, I find that uh, we have been uh, busy with variations of a cyberpunk. That's why. That's why I would uh, earlier uh, before before our interview, I was thinking if uh, the membrane would be categorized as bio uh, bio uh, punk instead of a cyberpunk. Mm. I I say this because uh, recently I talked to some uh, younger writers in the states and I asked them what the science fiction they read, and uh, they tell me that uh, they are reading uh, bio punk, and the cyberpunk is something kind of too old fashioned for them, and right. uh, I'm puzzled and I'm, I'm surprised. And then, okay, I see. Okay, so maybe so is the membrane that close to the category of a cyberpunk in which a uh, uh, which in the Taiwanese context is often. Uh, Comparable to film noir or film noir in in film uh, because in cyberpunk and and the film noir we know that the, uh, both of them feature uh, very uh, uh, depressed uh, single man in black and uh, uh, in search of the uh, in search of fun uh, That's mm. what uh, cyberpunk means in the Taiwanese context. But uh, right. Perhaps uh, the newer term uh, biopunk will be closer to the membrane, and uh, I also find that uh, there are also readers uh, who comment that the, the membrane is about uh, climate change, and so there is another term similar like a cli cli something. Sorry, it's a new one. Wi-Fi. Uh, so, so I think that uh, certainly we uh, the the rubric cyberpunk. Remains very important, but uh, many readers and I might find that the uh, variation of cyberpunk more relevant. So, like biopunk or or other terms. I have a very strange uh, personal anecdote, which at first is going to make okay. no sense, and then by the time I finish, you guys will see where I'm going. It's maybe got something a little bit in common with the membranes. Um, so recently, I learned that in chickens. Um, there exists DNA, DNA code for teeth, the kind of teeth that I guess dinosaurs would have had. And if you were to edit the genetic code of a chicken, it really wouldn't be so hard to help those genes express themselves and have chickens with teeth. And I was talking about this with a listener of the show, and the thought that popped into my head was, sounds kind of like um, a hybrid of like a speaking of mainland Chinese sci-fi, a Chen Chiu fan story, who is sort of like Mr. 
modern update of cyberpunk in so many ways. Uh, the new William Gibson, people have called him. And then um, Liu Cixin, who has a little bit of a strange obsession with dinosaurs, or at least he, he he's had a lot, written a lot of sort of dinosaur um, sci-fi stories. And then that made me think in my brain, what will happen in Google Images if I search for dinosaur cyberpunk? And the answer is there's loads of cool fan art of like cyber dinosaurs. It sounds so stupid, but it's amazing art. And to to mm -hmm. make this relevant to what you were saying about biopunk, it seems to me like, although, yeah, like the sort of like Blade Runner, noir, um, often quite orientalist picture of mm -hmm. cyberpunk, that's that is pretty dated. Um, like it's like when they remade sorry when they made the sequel to Blade Runner it's a good thing it was so different it was colorful and stuff so different from the original but yet but the point I want to make is cyberpunk seems to be a genre appropriately enough that hybridizes and evolves and does different things quite effectively you can like with biopunk you can take it a lot of places both yeah, like yeah. Uh, in practice doing interesting things with it but also just it helps that you can stick anything any word before punk and you've got something interesting biopunk solar punk this and that punk um but so to turn this into a question um what what is biopunk uh what do you mean by that Tawe? because okay. i'm just kind of uh, guessing what you mean. In, i i am not so good at the definition but i would think that uh, i think that uh, uh by biopunk of course i uh, I'm thinking about like a uh, bio art that uh, uh, Ari is certainly is very uh, familiar with. Uh, bio art and bio punk are very concerned with um, the manipulations of um, organisms, including you know human bodies. Uh, because of my uh, my long term long time interest in gender theory, uh, queer theory, and the disabled disability studies. Certainly, I am very interested in the bodies and the transformations of bodies. And uh, that's why I would think, think that uh, biopunk might be closer to my, uh, my own preoccupation. Maybe I don't know it so, uh, maybe I, I, I don't really capture its definition very precisely, but, uh, but I, I imagine that in the future, if I write anything new, uh, any new science fiction, I will still try to um, develop like uh, new devices about human biology. And I have to uh, say that uh, for, instance, for, for the time being, I, I have been very interested in the uh, our everyday wearing devices, uh, which mm. monitor human bodies, our uh, heart rates and uh, so on. And, uh, and I think that, the, the wearing devices are, of course, very uh, relevant to uh, the genre of biopunk instead of um, cyberpunk. Mm. Uh, Ari, can I pass the button to you? Do you have anything to say on, on this area? Uh, not much to add. I really support that, though. I think biopunk is an excellent, uh, excellent category, frame, a way of framing uh, the book. And, um, you know, all along I've been thinking, Angus, you already brought it up a little bit, but the... Um, it's always interesting to me how something like Blade Runner, which has had such an uh, outsized impact as a cultural object, how things like that actually also originate in a kind of techno-orientalism. So they, they kind of have been built on these stereotypes of the rainy, crazy Asian city with its no ethical you know, control over technological development um, into that fantasy that then 
goes full circle or is translated back again and, and goes off into all these different directions. So, um, so in that sense, you know, cyberpunk has also had that legacy in the past uh, in English languages. Um, so it's interesting to see it kind of removed from techno-orientalist contexts and thinking about something that is very self-consciously using these different mediums, these different languages together. I don't know if that's making any sense. But... Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, that, that's made me realize a question I forgot to write down in my list for you guys about the, the sort of um, cultural or not cultural setting of, of the book. So the, the surface of the earth has been scorched. There's not really much to orientalize there. There's not much left. And then under the sea, I think if I, if I remember correctly, there is some mention of like the territories humans have built their domes in there's some mm. remaining semblance of like nations or continents or something, but it's pretty clear that one one's nationality doesn't necessarily have to dictate where you, or one's nationality or, or ethnicity doesn't dictate necessarily where you live. So to mm -hmm. bring up Chinese, uh, mainland Chinese sci-fi again, a thing I find kind of disappointing in sci-fi from mainland China, which I generally Think is amazing and I'm really interested in but I feel like there's a little bit of a failure of imagination in some of it so like in the Yotsushin stories we're often looking at a world where uh, humanity has to either well I'm sorry let me be more specific in the three body problem and in wandering earth both of them humanity has to come together and they do come together but nations and strict boundaries between uh, nations and nationalities still exist um and yeah, like yeah. three body um there is it is a nice breath of fresh air where like the west the, the westerners aren't saving the world but most characters are sort of a stock stand-in based on their nationality so all the westerners are assholes or yeah, yeah. extremely uh pre often preachy assholes which is you know it's not completely mm -hmm. untrue um and then like in wandering earth and three body there, we had, there, there's a Japanese, a treacherous Japanese woman in Three Body. There's te technically two, I suppose. So like, there's a failure of imagination to, there's a, a success in imagination to go beyond so many limitations. Um, amazing forward thinking. But when it comes to like nations and things like that, yeah, yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah. We're frozen in like 1999 yeah. or something. Um, yeah. And in younger Chinese, mainland Chinese sci-fi authors whose short stories I've read, the that sort of the rigidity isn't there but there's not really such a i'm trying to think like there was one story i read where we're in we're in a city presumably it's china most people are chinese there's one or two characters who seem to be foreigners but it's not mm -hmm. clear if they're like uh, citizens if citizenship is possible or if they're expats or something it still feels a little bit like we've not mm -hmm. I don't know that the sort of old, the status quo is still there in some form, or it's not being interrogated. But in um, uh, the membranes, we've got quite an international cast who all interact quite freely. You don't really feel yeah. a sort of um, I don't know passport ID card wall between the characters, yeah. um, and there's a lot of references to things from other cultures, be it like mm -hmm. Japanese culture, Western culture. Yeah. Um, it felt it felt like I was reading a piece of literature that exists, you know, in the world, not in one country. Um, maybe yeah. that's just me carrying in my own biases with me. Well, 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 I think that uh, you, I think that you capture. May, 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 may I interrupting? 
But no, I, go for it. I was uh, running out of things to say, so you saved me. But I, 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 I appreciate that you were, yeah, yes, you, you noticed something very important. And I, I would say that it didn't occur to me, but since you said, I, I agree that uh, I find that the science fiction in Taiwan and the, the science fiction in, in, in China are very different uh, in regarding the obsession with the national boundary of a nationhood. Uh, usually the science fiction in Taiwan uh, is, uh, tends to be, yes, in, international and uh, uh, is not so concerned, is not so uh, obsessed with the national boundary or territory. And mm -hmm. I, I will also add, um, um, contextualize the membrane by saying that in the 90s, because in the 90s, uh, the Taiwanese young, younger people, artists, writers were, had more time and more uh, capital to, uh, to um, devote themselves to uh, creative writing. And then many would be willing to learn a lot from other countries. And uh, that's why, I think that, that's why the membrane uh, was, uh, uh, very uh, membrane alluded to a lot of um, international uh, cultural legacies, and uh, we also see uh, the same uh, tendency in Chou Miaojing's novels. So, um, yeah. Uh, so basically, um, uh, Taiwanese fiction in the nineties was not really uh, motivated by nationalism. The science fiction. Um, in China today, uh, I agree that uh, there are many wonderful works, but uh, meanwhile, I also find that uh, it's clear that uh, uh, some of them are so popular because uh, they, are, they align with uh, nationalism, which is not necessarily bad, but uh, we see that it's a, certainly a, a major motivation. That's why so uh, we can see that the so many readers are why they are so passionate about uh, science fiction in in china the the passion itself is interesting as a as a person in, in living in well as a as a scot as a scottish person living in scotland what you're saying about <laughs> oh. nationalism not always <laughs> being a completely evil force like of course i agree with you but i think and i don't know if yourself as a Taiwanese person feel this too, but growing up and living in a country, which is also by some definitions, not a country is, has taught me how mm. sort of illusory and how illusory the whole idea is. So yeah, clinging too hard to it can be a bit silly. And yeah. So like in not to keep making fun of poor Liu Cixin, because this one is not his fault, but in like the movie adaptation of The Wandering Earth, where all of humanity is mm. living in dorms, which have like their own national flag and um, mm -hmm. everyone's still living in little seg it's just like it makes me shake my head that we'd still be producing or the human race would still be producing stuff like that in the 21st mm -hmm. century um, which leads to one question I'd like to ask which we didn't ask yet which is a question for both of you um, are we living in the future that you guys were expecting in the 90s given that this book is kind of a portal back into that time what do you guys think of the future we live in today. Um, I'll, just because you've not spoken for a while, I'll give this one to Ari first. That's such a deep, uh, deep question, and it's a hard one. While you've been talking, of course, I've, my mind has been wandering to other, other speculative fictions and thinking, oh well, 
after all the effort of world building, you know, only to reproduce the problems of the world you're leaving behind. It, it's, it is disappointing when science fiction does that. Mm. Um, you know, I read, you know, I, I think a, a lot of us love Octavia Butler because she doesn't do that. You know, she takes, she's willing to say, okay, here are the problems of society. And when I'm reinventing the world, I'm not going to reproduce those problems knowingly. And Ursula Le Guin and others. And uh, Membranes also does that. Um, it doesn't assume that things have to end the way they began. So that's kind of an interesting question. And so as for if we, where we are now and how that relates to the past, God, I don't even know. I mean, no, I think because I, in spite of whatever troubles I had when I was younger, I, I think I was fundamentally an optimist and um, I wouldn't have anticipated that we really would succumb to climate change in the way that it has been happening. Um, and yet, yeah, so it's a bit, it's a bit scary and disappointing. Um, and, um, you know, I still have some optimism though. You know, and I still also try to remember that nothing is ever what it seems like. You know, that the reality is a very complicated question. So, um, so I don't. Uh, I just try to keep an open mind and see what this moment holds. But in a more, you know, direct answer to your question, I'd say no. It it really doesn't. I never expected that the things I was reading as fiction would, in fact, become a documentary. Essentially, like that's how that's how it feels. Like something like the membranes. Uh, and other other works that were meant to be uh, abstractions, you know, threats. This is going to happen if you don't act, and then it happened. So they're really they're not fiction anymore. That's weird. Totally, yeah. And I I was somewhat idealistic as a as like a, up, up to like I don't know. I really don't know how I would categorize my past self, but my my present self is pretty pessimistic. So I I think a lot of the dystopian stuff we've been producing is gonna could come in really handy as as a reference point mm. in the decades to come which is going to be the life we're all living um that's a good point you know because we can actually use this material that people have dedicated their lives to creating uh, ideas about how we can cope with it so it's not like we come in and you know with no weapons or no preparation yeah like Sorry. <laughs> like i remember back in like 2011-14 my university lecturers were saying isn't it funny that um, only we're only Hollywood's only producing dystopian visions of the future, but it's like there is a good reason for that <laughs> climate mm-hmm. change, yeah. and it resonates with like people myself who, as a kid, grew up and from like not day one in school, but our teachers were pretty clear like we're heading nowhere good here, guys. It's real, and then when the movies kind of emphasize it's real, I, I, I don't you know I don't see the need to get too upset about that but anyway i'll try and stop just vomiting up my own opinions um Tawe, um what do you think about the the future we're living in how does it match up with what you were expecting and this could be in terms of both society and also just technology has technology disappointed you or surprised you okay in the 90s in the uh, when i was writing the membrane the internet was already available in taiwan and uh, it was not a, uh, extremely pop, not yet very extremely uh, popular. But uh, uh, I remember uh, I uh, was one of the earlier writers who uh, chose to write on a computer instead of on paper. Uh, that was kind of new uh, um, in the 90s. And uh, I recall my, uh, my email addresses in Taiwan at that time, and my email address uh, at UCLA, 
might be worth uh, mentioning. For instance, my email address at UCLA is android at ucla.edu. <laughs> and um, my email address in Taiwan in the 90s uh, is also similar, android at something. Um, so I uh, certainly, I uh, like many of my friends, I, I was sensing that the internet would become big, but uh, I didn't expect that the social media would be, would be so uh, overwhelming, so decisive uh, in, the 20, in, in, in the present, in the 21st century. On the one hand, I, uh, I'm so excited with this because uh, it's really, it fits my social media, uh, fits my uh, personality very well because I, I um, am the a person who prefer to um, to be left alone uh, uh, without any um, living person around. I will be very happy to uh, <laughs> spend time along with my dogs. Uh, <laughs> but um, but uh, very soon, I also find that certainly the social media is certainly also. Uh, very uh, harmful. Uh, I'm not really talking about uh, the famous uh, uh, documentary, uh, Social Dilemma, showing how uh, social media uh, is uh, detrimental to all of us. Uh, I also, uh, I, I only mean to, uh, I, I only need to mention uh, one thing. Social media is exhausting. It's mm. very, uh, maybe it's harmful to the mental health, but uh, uh, what's obvious is, uh, but I only want to mention that, indicate that uh, it's very harmful to the physical health, uh, harmful to my eyes, and uh, um, and uh, uh, it makes my, I become more uh, obviously uh, worn out every day because of social media. So I think that the, uh, I think because the infinity of social media actually exposes how um, limited uh, my own physical life is. So that becomes a nightmare because, uh, because of the infinity of social media, I, I find that I'm so, my lifespan is so, so short and uh, I really uh, shouldn't spend the time as I used to. <laughs> So that's the, the future. The, the the future I'm experiencing, and uh, um, I'm still ambivalent about it. Yeah, I am. Um, so the the fear of missing out on things, uh, FOMO. I the, the way that has um, sort of what's the word? The way that's manifested for me is um, I think it's sort of is linked to social media. Like upon upon leaving China, a place that was maybe a little bit like what '90s Taipei was for you guys, a really a, a fun place where I was able to come out my shell a bit. Upon leaving, I thought, right, I will um, I'll just clone myself and I'll leave my clone to keep living this life here, and mm-hmm. I'll go back to my home country and live live the serious life. And I think, as strange as this sounds, part of that fantasy involves the copy of myself who's still enjoying himself in Shanghai having an Instagram account that I could check, which is completely insane when you, when you think about it, but yeah, like my, so much of those, those happy memories are linked up with a little 
shared virtual album of photos I, I made on Instagram, all these little square photos put through filters. Um, yeah, the way this stuff messes with our heads in ways that we probably can't even, that, w- that won't even be obvious to us unless we reflect a bit or unless someone points them out is, is pretty scary. And the, the other grumble I have, speaking of like disappointing futures, is um, the idea that some a, a website as rubbish as Facebook would be sort of the f- front page for the internet, given everything we know the internet can do is, um, I find that really disappointing and I hope something better replaces it. Um, but again, I'm going to stop just ranting um, and ask, was there another question I had? No, no, I'm actually, what I'm going to do now is I quite, I need the bathroom quite badly. Any so I'm just... oh, did you ask us to, to uh, uh, nominate any Chinese character to you? Oh yeah, go go to the bathroom if you. Yeah, yeah. You guys, you guys have your um, deliberation. I'll be back in a few minutes. Thanks, guys. And I have have to tell you that I can, I I cannot consider any Apple Watch for the time being. Oh, because I I find that the, I'm so obsessed with wearing devices. I I, for instance, for I have a. Yeah, the, the I have a, the ring, and uh, I check my score all the time. I check how ah. uh, it evaluates me all the time, mm. and uh, kind of and um, uh, and the more say that more comments that I'm kind of I'm already obviously paranoid. You yeah, yeah, so? it's very controlling. It's a, it's a control freak. Uh, yeah, it's very. Where, where did you find it? Actually. Did you find it like in the bottom of a lake? <laughs> no, no. Actually, it's recommended. Oh, well, it, it's hard. It's where, you know, it's an addictive thing. I'm similar. I think I would do the same. But the watch, yeah, stay away. It'll, it'll, also, it'll also listen to you. You know, you won't have any and privacy. And I, I, feel, I feel guilty whenever I lay down the ring. I feel guilty. Ah, interesting. <laughs> okay, I'm back. What happens if you let somebody else wear it for a while? Oh, that's of course that would be cheating. I think that the uh, I'll feel bad naturally. Mm. We were talking uh, about the wearing devices, like right. the Apple Watch. Mm. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, did either of you guys um, ever see a thing in them? I don't know if you guys do use uh, WeChat, but there was a thing in WeChat called WeWalk. At least that was the English version. Did you guys ever see that? Oh, no. it was um, it was the thing that used the footstep tracker on your phone. It was oh. like a little optional hmm. feature of WeChat, Weixin, um, and it made a league table of like you and all your friends that had WeWalk, and you could see how many people, sorry, how many steps everyone had taken, and it was oh, um, yeah, for people who don't like to lose, it was a really strong motivator to like get out of your flat and march around the city, find excuses to go places just so you could be the winner. And it was relentless because it reset every single day. It wasn't like, like it, yeah. And it actually did work on me. I was um, making myself walk around more just so I could win this imaginary number that was being generated by, you know, my phone tracking my own footsteps. Is we walk safe? Um, yeah, it was just um, it was just literally a little um, function of WeChat, the Chinese mainland Chinese app, 
and it would just show you a league table of where of your number of footsteps it didn't yeah. track like where you, well it probably did track where you went oh. and it sent the information <laughs> to Tencent or the Chinese government but your friends mm-hmm. would only see the numbers but no i did um, i did have the running app strava on my phone recently which tracked yeah i could publicly share where i went for runs mm-hmm. and as I, i wanted to see I was in the countryside in Fife, a pretty uh, rural part of Scotland. So I was really curious to see where else are people running, given that there's not very many roads here. And I found right away, I could like learn the running routines of people in the town nearby. Um, you could see their names. You could break it down into men and women. And it's like, what the hell? Who's <laughs> That is dangerous. So I deleted the app. It was also yeah, creating like, it was um, making the guy who didn't like to lose in me want to run more and more and further and further, which is, you know, good motivation, but probably bad for the mental health. Um, okay. I think I remembered the question I wanted to ask. So I had a whole series of um, comparison questions. Uh, one was about notes of a crocodile and Tiong Miao Jin, but I think uh-huh. we hit on that already. Um, another was mainland Chinese sci-fi. We hit yeah. on that already. Another was cyberpunk. I think we bashed that one into the ground already. Um, <laughs> I did want to ask both of you. I know, Tawei, you have an answer here. Have you read much mainland Chinese sci-fi? And do you have any thoughts on it that you haven't shared already? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I find that I... Um, certainly, I, I, I need to agree that uh, the uh, recent science fiction from China, and, and I also... Uh, teach uh, my students uh, in Taipei uh, to read them and um, uh, some students and I happen to enjoy Hao Jingfang more I think maybe because uh, yeah, Hao Jingfang is a female uh, writer and uh, who is especially known for Beijing uh, folding uh, Beijing yeah, Beijing yeah, um, yeah. folding Beijing Holding Beijing, yeah. I think that the, the reason is that I think that uh, the some other science fiction writers smell so strongly of men, so strongly of masculinity. <laughs> and uh, uh, why, uh, and then I, I feel that uh, it's uh, maybe I am too um, <laughs> sensitive to that. Their works are also interesting. For instance, uh, Liu Cixing's, uh, um, Liu Cixing's uh, novellas are also enjoyable to me like uh, i remember there uh, for instance the, the one is called uh, to uh, to rescue the ancestors and the other is called to rescue the the offspring um may i google it go for it i can think of one which is a short story that exists in english translation where all these like old people who are kind of like gods come to earth and they become members of people's families. Um, that sounds possibly like the ancestors one, but I'm not sure. I don't know the Chinese name. Okay. Okay. I think that, yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the two uh, novellas I'm referring to are uh, his San Yang Shang Di means uh, to, to feed the God. Yeah. The, because of to feed the gods because uh, in the story the gods are in they need to be fed by humans to survive mm. and uh, in 
in the same year, uh, also 2005, there is another story by Liu Cixin called San Yang Renlei, means to feed the humans. Uh, in the story, it is the humans in general who are impoverished. And um, I think that the novellas, actually, they are more manage manageable for me to, to teach in the classroom because it certainly is too ambitious to assign the students to read uh, the three body problems. And uh, I find mm. that the, the, the sto and, and I also, and I can imagine, in fact, I can imagine uh, why Liu Cixin stands out uh, among the science fiction writers in today's China. I think that he, uh, he shows some, maybe some, oh, sorry for, for the word choice, uh, humanitarianism, uh, from uh, from the cultural revolution trauma, I think that the, so so I find that there is more uh, relatable uh, compassion and sympathy in his science fiction, and is I yeah. think that will be more that that will be more relevant to the readers in Taiwan today, and um, and the some the the younger writers. Uh, the younger science fiction writers in China um, are brilliant, but uh, I find that they they don't uh, um, um, excite that. Okay, okay, they don't uh, stimulate uh, Chinese readers that uh, readily. Uh, readily, but Hao Jingfang might be. Not, I think Hao Jingfang is well received in Taiwan, but perhaps um, her. Um, Attention to to the um, her style is not not that uh, masculine, and so it's more acceptable to uh, to the Taiwanese taste. Yeah, I I can see what you mean about the decision and having a sort of humanitarian concern, because when I when I think of his stories, I kind of think about the really bleak pessimism and sometimes the sort of anti-human angle like we are such a small speck in the universe but at the same time you're totally right like there is a real compassion for sort of like the fate of humanity there as well and one of the things I like about the stuff by him I've read is that both those two things are sitting there and they sort of they're either clashing against each other or they're feeding into each other and thinking of Folding Beijing by Hao Jingfang I can see a similar thing like it's kind of a very impersonal story about a city and a system, but there's also sort of very zoomed in pictures of the lives people are living and the struggles they're facing, whether it's the people at the bottom layer who are struggling to get enough food to eat and pay their rent, or the people in the middle world who are um, struggling with sort of the career ladder and all those expectations. Yeah, and like the, the other... I've read her um, novel that's available in translation, um, covered it on the show actually, uh, Vagabonds, um, or what's it? Mon Liu Lang Ma so I think is the Chinese name. And there, it struck me the same way. There's like a real concern for people's emotions and feelings, but at the same time, it had a sort of very cere cerebral, intellectual, not so human side to it as well. So yeah, I can see a similar thing in both those authors could appeal to people. I think that was all my comparison questions. I think I'm ready to move on to the silly stuff now. Um, first silly question, um, and I know you guys deliberated on this a bit, 
um, can you either individually or collectively suggest a Chinese word of the day to represent the membranes? Uh, are you may, yeah, may you? I was just thinking, oh, you know, good old Zan, like Zan may the Zan, just because it's so, um, it's a word yeah, that yeah. now everybody understands in a certain way that before Facebook wouldn't have had any, is no, the meaning has transformed so dramatically so that, you know, it's, and it, it's entirely because of internet and expression of approval or, you know, but it doesn't really, yeah, it's not really a, a specific, oh. um, it's not really specific to this book. Yeah, it's the one, I associate that one in my mind with the little animated WeChat stickers of a guy doing a million thumbs up, zan, 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 zan. is that the one? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, Tawi, do you have one or are we going to stick with Zan? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I nom- nominated Qing mm. uh, mm. as in Qing uh, Ren in Fu Qing Mu Qing. Again, I, because uh, I want to emphasize the, the motive of parenting. And um, um, in addition, um, uh, Qing also refers to uh, intimacy and um, uh, affinity, and uh, certainly uh, these mm. are very uh, uh, sensitive issues in the membrane as well. And uh, so far, I see. I think that I'm still uh, trying to dealing with um, the uh, challenges about intimacy and uh, mm. distance uh, with uh, distance from uh, fellow human beings. Uh, that's why earlier I said that uh, uh, I am so worn out, but uh, also fascinated uh, with social media because social media is also about the chain um, affinity, um, intimacy, mm. or mm. So distance. That sounds more convincing. Let's go with Qing. <laughs> I, we can do two, but... Yeah, um, Ching and Dan, that's, that's great. Um, I, I, I guess I want to ask you one more question about social media, Tawe. Um, do you think it can go somewhere good? Do you have hope about the direction social media is going or do you hope we can escape from it? Hope? I think that, uh, so in fact, uh, I admit that uh, it's already very toxic and uh, it might be even more so in the future. And... Um, I, uh, uh, as a teacher in college, of course, I, I often en- envy how uh, useful and energetic my students are. But uh, meanwhile, I'm also very, <laughs> I, I'm also complacent and relieved that uh, I don't need to uh, uh, grow up in um, um, in a culture where uh, social media evaluates everything about me or about my peers, mm-hmm. I don't need to compete with my peers on social media because yeah, many, many of my peers mm-hmm. or colleagues are not active on social media at all. But uh, mm-hmm. my students are so concerned and they, they really calculate uh, how many likes they get uh, every day and uh, do they get more likes than their peers and uh, uh, do they need to go to the gym in mm. order to get more likes on Instagram and um, mm. I I can sense their suffering and I know that uh, in the I can, I can it's easier it's easy for all of us to pre, uh, foresee that uh, 
the kids in the future, uh, young people in the future will suffer more from social media because everybody wants. Yeah, I was just going to say I have a a little sister who's fourteen, and I try to. I try to worry sometimes about like what she's going through dealing with social media, but I it defeats my imagination. I can't I can't get my head around what that must be like because I had I guess an experience with the very some of the very first waves of it. Um, like I think my the thing that drove me crazy at that age was um, MSN Messenger being able mm-hmm. to stay at home and talk with talk with people who I would never talk with at school virtually and then meet them in school and have nothing to say and like in in um in hindsight that was pretty weird and not necessarily healthy and I just sort of wonder but I don't think it had a very strong impact on who I am today so I never know even how much I should be worrying and how much I should just trust kids like my little sister and kids her age to be able you know growing up in that environment to know what they're doing or possibly have no idea what they're doing. It just totally defeats my ability to to make predictions. Um, but, um, I, yeah. but I have a but um, some students tell me that uh, they enjoy my Instagram, and I'm surprised <laughs> why. The, the reason the, the reason is is um, is is amusing and surprising to me because they find that uh, on my on Instagram, I often recommend I often uh, recommend books or recommend uh, events like uh, talks. So the students feel that uh, uh, they don't feel recom- uh, competition from my Instagram account. They only find that the, a very uh, a teacher's advice, and they feel it's very calming and a very warm to them i i am really I'm, nice i in fact i i don't i i think that is also in fact they can also they could have uh, interpreted my inter, uh, intention to be patronizing but uh, they they didn't do they didn't think that way but uh anyway so i my my instagram messages are less harmful than they appears yeah that's an app that I hear a lot of people saying is an awful place for in terms of like mental health or just the way it distorts reality. Um, and I found that in my own experience, and maybe this is because of how I use the app and who I am, I found it to be quite an upbeat, positive place in, in many ways. But maybe that's because of the things that might, the things about it that might drive me crazy don't affect me so much. Whereas like Twitter is the one that I look at that and I get a headache um, and I don't see much generosity there. Whereas like, I don't know if that's similar to your experience, but like it's, it seems easier on there to have a little bit of a sincere engagement without someone, without having to worry about someone finding something to attack you for. I, d- I don't know. But the, the fact that you're able to be there as a teacher and, you know, be appreciated by your students that's 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 really nice that's social media being good i guess well i don't have anything much to add either so yeah okay well let's just march on then next question uh, an even sillier one uh, if the membranes was a drink what would it be um oh yeah yeah i think you have an answer ready right uh i um i 
in fact, I the the question um to the question I want to nominate um kombucha, and kombucha is something in fact uh, relatively new to me because when I see the job, I I think that yeah, I used to think that that it was only a kind of uh, ordinary drink, uh something to any other juice, but uh, uh one once I realized that uh, actually it uh it was developed in jars and the, the jars look like the eggs in the famous science fiction uh, film aliens because <laughs> uh, the, the the jars look like uh, uh okay uh in in the jars I see the jellyfish like uh stuff and um uh um, in fact, uh, in the, at first I I couldn't associate what I saw in the jars with kombucha. I normally understood, so I think that the kombucha is quite. Um, but I know that is I I I hear that it's healthy, so maybe it's it will be good, uh, relevant, and good to all of us. You you've made me realize. Maybe the Ridley Scott film I kept talking about shouldn't have been Blade Runner. Maybe it should have been alien because i think it's especially in some of the later alien films motherhood daughterhood or yeah. weird alternate ways to be born or to create yeah, yeah, life yeah. or to ch- manipulate transform modify life that's a parallel with the membranes although obviously in the membranes it's a that's a happier story and in alien it's a horror story but is there uh, anything deeper uh-huh. we could say about that connection in in that, but uh, it is uh it's interesting that uh, you you brought it up, um, but uh, it occurs to me that uh, uh nowadays uh uh friends of my generation, and I often tease each other by alluding to uh the films uh, the film series Aliens and uh, how uh how the okay the 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 very uh. Uh, the queer parenting in in the aliens series, uh, but uh, my friends and I still don't talk about um, Blade Runners. Mm. I think I think that the, so so in fact we so the aliens uh, the, the allusions to aliens are already in our everyday life. We we refer to um, uh, to the characters very casually without thinking much. But the Blade Runner is in in fact a kind of Distant to uh, my everyday life, mm. so I, I so, so I I agree that the um, the okay and the, in in addition and the, the pandemic before the, the COVID nineteen makes us pay more attention to the facial masks, the surge uh, the, the the masks and the, the masks mm. really resemble the um, the organisms in Alien, but uh, so. So, uh, the the pandemic reminds us of the uh, of alien movies, but uh, not not of Blade Runner. So, hmm. aliens certainly closer to us. Interesting. I've just remembered something I, I meant to bring up when you mentioned Terminator and the fact that those are Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. I think I'm just speaking very generally here. It's it's amazing the jumping off the, the how far we can get if we use some of these sci-fi films as a intellectual jumping off point um, because it might be out of like like 
Blade Runner, um, Alien, and Terminator, probably the, the, easy, the easiest one for your average person to just dismiss and try to forget, ignore would probably be Terminator because it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger, action movie, robots. That's three reasons someone might have to think this is like a food movie for meatheads. There's nothing deep here. There's nothing weird here. But actually, like Terminator has all the cyborg stuff and then the stuff with time, the future coming back to try and construct yeah, yeah, the past. Yeah, That's yeah. a really weird idea the more you think about it. Yeah. And then in the Alien films, people might instinctually write those off for so many reasons. Um, we had those terrible alien predator crossover movies. And in these last two films, Prometheus and uh, especially Alien Covenant, Ridley Scott. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Prometheus actually, but Alien Covenant made me want to bash my head against a wall. It was so disappointing. But we have to, sort of, <laughs> like, it's very fruitful if we either uh -huh. get back to what made these films so captivating in the first place, or this is kind of what I like to do. If you're trying to use it as an intellectual exercise, forget the fact some of it is silly, some of the films were bad. There's still lots of interesting ideas, like um, Alien yeah, Covenant yeah, yeah. has some really interesting stuff yeah. going on with um, yeah. the two yeah. cyborgs. If, so yeah, mm -hmm. these things are extremely fruitful. And for me anyway, I find them, I find them more fruitful than conventional like art films or literary films. Mm -hmm. I really think mm -hmm. in some of sci-fi and, and fantasy, especially sci-fi, we could talk, we could do a 10 hour podcast easily because this stuff is so interesting and cuts into what it means to be modern humans, like so, so much. Anyway, I, I keep doing this. I keep going on and on about other films and books, never mind the membranes. Um, so last question uh, in this section for, for both of you guys, it's a self promo slot. Um, if listeners want to see more things you've done or, um, buy some things by you or find you online, where would you send them? Um, Ari, do you want to go first since you've not spoken in a while? Uh, sure. I I don't have a website uh, yet, maybe someday, but uh, I do try to put as much free stuff as I can on academia.edu. So that site, although it has its problems, um, at least it's easy. Uh, so a lot of essays that I've written, anything that isn't subject to serious copyright infringement issues, I just put it all there. So if any, anyone wants to, other than that, if anyone's ever interested in something that I've written and they can't find it, just email me and I'll send you a copy. Um, the other thing is that my last book, uh, Chinese Surplus, is now available open access. So it's also very easy to download for free uh, as a PDF. Um, so that I don't think people should have to pay for difficult scholarly theory works instead. So it's, uh, but there's still parts of it which maybe, which involved, you know, futurisms and bodies in strange formations and things. So uh, if anyone's interested, they could, they can find that. And, um, can, can, I bug, can I bug you? What is the elevator pitch for Chinese Surplus? What's it about? Well, Chinese Surplus is, it is an academic book. Um, so one of its main target audiences is other academics. However, uh, it has aspects which might be of interest to broader uh, population as well. And it's, uh, it's basically a study of how the body, the human body becomes a tradable commodity in contemporary life and how those commodities all have different values and some bodies are worth more than others. And in the case of, in that book, I'm looking at Chinese bodies in particular and how they get evaluated as um, meaningful in the world as, 
as valuable in certain biomedical or artistic con uh, contexts. So the argument is one that you could apply in other areas as well, like African studies or African-American studies or elsewhere. Uh, but in that case, in that book, I'm just looking at cases of Chinese bodies that have been sold or where a price tag has been attached uh, in different contexts in the world um, and trying to get underneath what produced that disparity of value of the human body. Great. Um, I guess since that's open access, I'll, um, when I'm putting the show notes together, I'll just pop a link for that one up for, for anyone who's sold on that elevator pitch. <laughs> it's, it's right there. The magic of open access. Awesome. Um, Tawei, what about yourself? Yeah, I, um, I am very vain, so I have my own <laughs> uh, website, uh, which is taweichi.com, T-A-W-E-I-C-H-I dot C-O-M. And um, uh, I, yes, I've just uh, saw everything there, um, uh, my, uh, the links to my uh, Instagram, my uh, Twitter, and so on. So although I, I'm critical of social media, I'm still <laughs> subscribing to it. Fantastic. I mean, it's, this is somewhat caused by the Great Firewall, but it's not so often that I'm covering an offer on the show whose Twitter I can promote, or sometimes they have one, but they, they don't use it. So yeah, it's, it's cool that we've got some, someone that listeners could quite easily follow and even I don't know if if a listener had a question for you, would would you welcome it via social media? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, in fact, cool. I so far I, this year because thanks to Ari's translation, uh, some uh readers uh of the the review copies uh already uh gave me way uh, very wonderful recommendations of uh like uh, arts or books they are um. That working on or they are in they enjoy and i learn a lot from them yeah mm, so awesome. uh, i learn a lot from so it's in fact uh, um i'm happy to interact with them fantastic and that actually connects nicely with the next question uh recommendations if um our listeners want more like the membranes other stuff they could read where would you point them um as Tawei, do you want to go first Okay, I, I will point out the two directions of which my, um, okay, and they are very different, but uh, uh, they are also books. Maybe you uh, you all might have known already. Uh, the first is, uh, uh, as I mentioned many times, uh, Chiu Miao Jing's books. Uh, Chiu Miao Jing is one of the, uh, the best known, uh, internationally known writers from Taiwan and uh, uh, her two book, um, uh, she, uh, she's lesbian, and uh, um, her two book, uh, two books are already available in English translation. Uh, uh, one is uh, translated, the one of them is translated by Arik, uh, the last word from Montmartre, and uh, um, uh, may, may know that the Ocean Wong's book uh, novel, um, uh, on Earth we are briefly gorgeous, um. But uh, uh, it's worth noting that the Ocean Wong's book starts with a quotation from Chiu Miao Jing, and uh, that quotation is from Ari Henrik's translation. And um, um, it would be great for readers to see the connections uh, among uh, 
Asian, uh, queer Asian and the queer Asian American writers. So I would recommend it. Uh, we will recommend Shomajin's books in translation. The other is, uh, I by saying that I might congratulate myself, but I, I really need to say that Ishiguro's new book, uh, Clara and the Song, uh, is a yeah is a is a base best selling um, science fiction now. It's a new book, but uh, I'm surprised to find that it's also it's kind of uh, uh, it kind of kind of uh, reminds me of the membrane as well. But uh, I I don't imagine uh, Ishiguro is influenced by the membrane. Um, in Clara and the Sun, the the novel is uh, the novel also focuses on. Um, a very strange relationship between a mother and uh, a daughter. So uh, in some sense, um, it's kind of similar to the membrane. And uh, I'm surprised with the similarities. I think that uh, Ishiguro's new novel is, is certainly similar to his earlier ones, like The Remains of the Day. So it's, a, it's also... Perhaps some readers will find that uh, um, these comparisons uh, intri- interesting. Hmm. Cool. Thanks for that. Um, Ari, do you have any um, pointers for listeners who want more of similar work? Uh, I would just second that. I, I hope someone writes a review at some point and brings together uh, Ishiguro and uh, Dawei's book because, books because there is some really rich conversation to be had between the two. Um, I didn't have hmm. a specific uh, set of books relate. Uh, to read that are like membranes, but I have had a pile of books on my own reading list. Uh, uh-huh. The problem for me is I always am doing academic reading first. And so every time I want to read something, I put it in a, um, in a pile and the pile's gotten very big and I don't know when I'll get to read it, but um, here's one called Dear Cyborgs by Eugene Lim, uh-huh. um, which is like queer and weird and sci-fi. Here's a really great one. I have read part of this one. It's called Connor and Seal by Ji Liang Ko, and it's actually a poem about gay men lovers in the future. Uh, so it's a, like, it's weird science fiction future gay men lovers, but poet, in poetry form. It's fast, it's amazing. And then um, there's this one by um, Severance by Ling Ma. I, oh, I haven't yeah. gotten to it yet, but I've, of course I know what the plots are, but then there's finally um, Leave the World Behind by uh, Ruman Alam. Uh, then there's one last one that I'll recommend and that is um, this one's called, it's weird it's called Apsara Engine and and the author is Mm -hmm. Ishak Sam and it's actually a a graphic novel format and it involves all kinds of weirdness like time travel and conversation and love affairs and it's so cool how this author uh, makes those things work together like a lot of the illustrations you'll see are just yeah. Just com- people having conversations. It's like the hardest thing to illustrate, I think, you know, because that's all it is at one panel after another, someone talking to someone else. And yet it's so rich in like making the time go by. So that's a, some well, examples of books I've, that may or may not be in yeah. the same spirit, like queer sci-fi, some vague connection to um, di- diasporic Asian identity. Mm-hmm. Right. I've got two um, that, have sprung to mind during this um during this call that i'll drop for the listeners as well one of them is going to make me 
for anyone who's listening to the show for a long time, they might be suspicious about me being not really much of a reader because this is recycling a past recommendation. Um, On the episode I did with Ken Leo, actually, on that Hao Ching Fan book, Vagabonds, I recommended Sophie's World by Justine Garder um, because Vagabonds was directly trying to deal with like philosophy to some extent anyway. It was trying to be quite directly not quite just fiction and Sophie's World um, is sort of a intro to philosophy for for younger people it's about this girl who meets a rather strange teacher who sort of chapter by chapter just introduces her to like an idea connects it to a I think it's always a western philosopher and then you get some sort of weird fantastical goings-on which keep you interested but it's not the philosophy that I think makes that book similar to the membranes it's two things it's that it has a bit of a turning point where things get very strange and the reality that we've taken as a granted sort of unravels. Uh, I can't actually remember exactly what that moment is because I read that book when I was quite a lot younger. But there's a real one of my favorite moments in the membranes. Um, we go into sort of an infinite loop or a moment when the story, it's almost like someone hit a pause button on the story or like the, if it was a film, I would imagine the image glitching and then reality is just upended and then is progressively sort of unraveled and we get closer to what the real reality uh, at the core or beneath the surface or something is. And Sophie's world isn't really remembered for this, but from what I remember in its final act, things get very strange and we end up with a reality that's very far removed of what we started with. And there is a bit of a doubling going on. I remember that there's some sort of other Sophie that the real Sophie is trying to reach. And we didn't talk about this much in our conversation, but in uh, the membranes, there's Momo and there's a somewhat mysterious character called yeah. Andy. And they are some some kind of a strange dark mirror image, or I don't know what the right term is, but there's some kind of mirroring or doubling going on there. And the other book that sprung to my mind when Ari, you showed us the strange poetry book, there's a very weird book, which I read. I didn't even necessarily enjoy it. Um, it's by Mark Z. Danielewski, the guy who did... Um, the House of Leaves. His next book was this bizarre book called Only Revolutions about a young guy and a young girl who are dry, they're on like a road trip or something. And one, it's one of these ones you can read it backwards and forwards. One page is the, I don't know, the male, the the boy, the guy's narration, and the other half is the girl's narration. Um, I was completely disorientated the whole way through reading it. Uh, unlike the membranes, I didn't really feel like I understood what was going on at the end. Uh, the membranes has that advantage over it. But again, they're supposed to sort of serve as a literally a mirroring because the book, you can flip it upside down and read the other character's story. So how connected that is, I don't know. But there's a similar sort of um, character dynamic or a somewhat similar character dynamic. And I think there's the same sort of experimental spirit. I'm not sure if you were trying to write something really experimental that way, but I kind of felt that a um, little bit of an avant-garde or trying to really get out there, do something really unique. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, so my very last question now uh, for you both, uh, what are you both reading just now? I think, Ari, you might have kind of already answered that. But Well, I, I have one last book to add to that, but just separately, uh, yeah. I've been reading Kim Stanley Robinson's um, Ministry of the Future, oh. Ministry of- Oh. It's a, it's a big book, and so it's it's not one to eat in one meal. 
but uh, but it's very interesting. And actually, it comes back to earlier in our conversation, we were talking about uh, optimism versus pessimism. And I would say that the book is actually, it falls on the optimistic side because it in- imagines, what if everyone did cooperate? You know, what could we actually accomplish? And it, in, in typical Kim Stanley Robinson way, way, it's incredibly detailed, you know, sometimes more detailed than you can really absorb, um, but really going into the nuts and bolts of, okay, let's imagine, you know, if we're going to build a world that survives, what, what will that look like? So it actually is a bit encouraging. So I, I recommend it for that reason. So long as it's a good read too, that's uh, perfect. Uh, Tawei, what are you reading just now? I, in that, I also, um, I also got the, um, the uh, Ministries of Future um, uh, Outreach mm-hmm. Administration, but of course it's also on my pile. And I, I just finished uh, reading uh, the science fiction a novel by Ian McEwan, uh, Machines Like Me. And mm-hmm. I, uh, it's also, it's a novel about uh, cybers and uh, uh, I'm kind of shocked by it. Oh, I, I, I find that the book is shocking and admirable. And uh, it, explores, it, it explores some dimensions of cybers that uh, uh, I didn't, I haven't think of, I, I haven't thought about clearly. So I find that uh, um, I learned a lot, I learned a lot from the book. And I find that, uh, uh, yeah, it shows me that uh, uh, there's still a lot of room to explore uh, on, um, whenever we, we imagine the, the characters of cyborgs. Fantastic. Some great recommendations there. I think that's, that is all the questions I had. So is there anything we've missed you guys would really like to say before we wrap it up completely? I can't think of anything. In no? fact, uh, I I mean, my add add something, but it's uh, quite uh, irrelevant. Uh, but uh, <laughs> may I say that uh, <laughs> uh, my partner is a translator of uh, transporting in into Chinese in Taiwan. Oh wow! Yeah. So I yeah when so I he and I also have uh, some feel some affinity with Scotland, and uh, we would love to visit Scotland when. Yeah, when everything when when everything is clear, very soon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you, there's both good and bad news. Daily life in Scotland is usually not like an Irving Welsh novel, but it also can be sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Everybody Have you? Over. Uh, yeah, there there is sobriety and drunkenness, but not just what, not just drunkenness. Um, this is a really, again, not really relevant. Have either of you read his book, The Acid House, or have you heard of that? It's a short story. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but, um, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's published, uh, uh, in fact, uh, in, in Taiwan a long time ago. I, I should oh, yeah. stick it out. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. available there for a while. It's quite an old book. That was one, I guess, it's probably from a similar time as The Membranes. And yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Similarly, parts of it are like, oh, yeah, this is the 90s. This is a different time. Another <laughs> part is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is uh, more advanced than anything I've seen. So, I, I, I was, yeah, I have parallel I never would have seen coming, um, The Membranes and Urban Welsh. Um, on that note, though, I guess I'll just say thank you both for, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. An awesome chat. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. And I, I hope... I hope this book gets all the coverage it deserves. 
because it's a really interesting book. Thanks. And thanks for yeah. your work. I know it's a lot of work to do these interviews and transcribe and yes. stuff. And I, I think your website yeah, yeah, is awesome. Yeah. It's like such a resource. Such a great resource. Cheers. It's been good to make the connections. And I'm glad the website is um, has got useful stuff. Oh, on it's it. fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to uh, use it in teaching, you know, like students will be really glad to know about it. Cool. Cool. Have you found the map on it? Mm, no. I made a little custom Google map where I plot well, where, where I can, I plot like the, where the author is from and the setting. And that, I mean, it does have a pretty strong bias towards Jiangnan, mm. so like Shanghai, mm. Jiangsu, Zhejiang, and uh, Beijing, and also sort of like the Guangdong, mm. Hong Kong sort of area. But it's getting more interesting now because we're starting to do the sort of the wider Sinophone world and also stuff in or around the borders of mainland mm. China. So that might, it's probably getting well it's probably for a teaching perspective it's probably got two uses zoomed out seeing the bigger mm. picture and then for like urban literature zooming in on where everything is in shanghai and i'll Beijing. have to take advantage of that function be so far yeah, it's really cool yeah anyway i'm gonna hit stop Okay, that is the end of the episode. So now we're just going to do the old uh, the old plugs. I'm going to do something a bit different, not not completely different to be honest, but I thought I would just tell you guys a wee bit about what's up for grabs, so to speak, on the Churchific Patreon, um, all the bonus episodes I've been making. So I'll just go through the most recent five that have been posted and then the next five that are scheduled. I'll summarize them all really quickly. So um, on March 11th, I did a like a preliminary thoughts on this very book, The Membranes, where I kind of gave my thoughts upon reading, I think upon just having finished the book, how I was feeling, what I was thinking. I did touch on some things that I did not touch on in the interview. So quite literally, there is bonus content there for you. Um, then after that, we have the cover analysis of Monkey King Journey to the West. So another book that has already been covered on a published episode on the show, but this was a breakdown of the cover itself on all the paratextual elements, like the quotes, the blurbs. So I was using my sort of publishing expertise, trying to look at it in a more, at a more technical level and seeing what I could say and extrapolate. Then there's two more preliminary thoughts episodes upon getting about halfway through or just upon having finished a book. One was Zero and Other Fictions by Huang Fan. That is a book I'm aiming to cover on this Taiwan season. So if you'd like to steal a march on me, so to speak, then that is up on the Patreon. And then I have a preliminary thoughts and a post-read thoughts on Playing for Thrills by Wang Shua. So if you listen to those two back to back, you can see what I thought of the book halfway through and then what I thought about it upon finishing. These episodes are all roughly about half an hour. Some of them extend a bit further than half an hour. There are some Patreon episodes further back that are briefer, but I would say these days on average, they average about half an hour. So they're a bit shorter than episodes on the main show. Now there are uh, absolute donkeys. There's there's a lot of episodes scheduled for release that will be coming out over the next few months. I will just I'll go through the next five quickly. So I have a preliminary thoughts on Notes of a Crocodile. So, and then a post-read thoughts actually. So the same thing, you can see where I was at halfway through that book, which is Queer Lit from Taiwan, we'll be covering on this Taiwan season. And then you can see how I felt once it was finished. Then we have another preliminary thoughts episode on the man with the compound eyes. That's some Taiwanese climate fiction, cli-fi, climate science fiction, that again, I'm going to be covering on the show. And then if you skip two episodes past that on May 25th there will be a post read thoughts you get like how I felt upon finishing the book 
my reflections upon it. Uh, between those two episodes, there's uh, thoughts on a sort of China-related, uh, but not Chinese fiction book, Miracles of Life by J.G. Ballard, which is a memoir of his life, funnily enough, an autobiography, which opens with his life, his, his childhood in Shanghai, which makes for a really interesting comparison with the depiction of it in Empire of the Sun. And you know, Shanghai is pretty close to my heart, so there are some thoughts there. And then, screw it, I'll just tell you the other two that are queued up. Uh, one is another post-read thoughts, it's on Taipei people, so as you might guess, that's another book I'll be covering in this Taiwan season. It's kind of sort of more literary fiction, so that's, yeah, that's a book that had some really crystalline, powerful moments, and I try to get some of those feelings across in this Patreon episode, and hopefully I'll get them across in the main feed too. And then last of all, yet more friggin' Chinese sci-fi, because I can't stay away from it. Post-read thoughts upon finishing uh, a new Liu Tzu translation book of ants and dinosaurs, another clash of civilizations story. Don't know when I'll ever cover that on the main feed, but there'll, bo there'll be a bonus episode on that one up on June the 9th. So just one USD per month gets you access to the Patreon. There's more shows on there now than there are on the main feed, so it'll keep you occupied for a very long time. Unless, I mean, even if you do power through it minute by minute, there's hours and hours and hours and hours of content there for you now. Quite proud of it. And every bonus episode has a thumbnail that I'm I'm mostly proud of them. There's a few shitty ones. Um the playing for thrills ones weren't as cool as I thought they were when I was making them, but there are some really nice ones too. Like the Zero Huang Fan one I think is a nice little piece of Photoshop art. But um anyway, what can you do to help the show apart from signing up to the Patreon? Well there are other ways to support the show too. You can find a support link on the um the main website which is churchoffic.podbean.com um all sorts of goodies goodies are up there on the main website actually like the churchoffic map that i mentioned to my unsuspecting guests at the end of the interview now of course though the best thing you can do for the pod is nothing to do with money really it's just by spreading the word so if you know anyone friend family teacher colleague whatever who might be interested in the show tell them tell your cyborg twin Tell your queer parent. Tell your super straight parent, if you have one. Tell... who else could you tell? Hmm... Tell the little man that lives inside your computer who might be more real than you are. I don't know what that means either. Anyway, it's IGN. 